The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. We're starting a new study of the book of 1 Peter. Uh, over the next several weeks, um, I think we'll finish up probably November-ish. Um, we're going to be studying the book of 1 Peter together. And the letter is written by the apostle Peter during a time when the church uh, is being persecuted. And that persecution is really, it's really starting to ramp up, okay? Um, persecution of the church, it kind of started with these isolated attacks from Jewish leaders, um, maybe some, a few zealous mobs. But as Peter is writing this letter, official sanctioned persecution under the Roman emperor Nero is on the horizon. This is, this is just a few years before Nero starts blaming Christians for the fire that raged through uh, the region there and really starts to persecute them. And it becomes an official sanctioned thing that, that you could kill Christians. And so Peter is trying to prepare the hearts and minds of these Christians for what is inevitably coming. He, he, he knows persecution is ramping up, it's building, tensions are high, and he's trying to prepare these Christians for what he knows is coming. Now, Peter did have some insider information on what to expect. He knew what was coming because he was told what was coming, right? As Jesus finishes uh, his last meal before he dies, before he's crucified, he prepares the disciples for what's to come. In John 15, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they, were, they will also keep yours. So Peter had this understanding that persecution was coming and it wasn't going to be this little persecution. It was going to ramp up. It was going to be this heavy persecution that was going to come. And he was trying to prepare the church for the storm that he knew was coming. He's preparing their hearts, he's preparing their minds, he's getting them ready. And so as we read through this letter, as we study through this letter, know that that's the context. The context is that persecution is coming, it's going to ravage through the church, and Peter is preparing these people for what is coming. And so he actually tells us in chapter 5 what his purpose is in writing the letter. In 1 Peter 5.12 he says, uh, through Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written you briefly in order for the reason of to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God, so stand firm in it. That's his whole purpose in writing this letter is to let them know that this is the real gospel. Remember the gospel that you were saved by. Remember the truth of this gospel and stand firm in it. He wanted to encourage these Christians to stand firm in the true grace of God. He says, don't waver. Don't waver. Hard times are coming, so set down some roots and stand firm. Get ready for the storm that's coming. So if persecution is inevitable on the horizon, how do we prepare for that? We stand firm in the gospel. We continue to know the gospel, we continue to live the gospel, and we continue to preach the gospel. So if you truly know and understand the reality of the grace of God, and you're, you're going to be so changed by that truth that you'll be able to endure anything because your hope is not in this life, but it's in the next. 
We as believers should understand that. If we truly grasp the reality of the gospel that we read in this, in this book, we should understand that our hope is not in this time, in this day and age. We don't live for this. We live for what's to come. And so when bad stuff happens, when trials come, when persecution comes, we can endure those things because we know that this is temporary and that our hope is in what's to come. You guys have probably heard the book, Your Best Life Now, by old Smiley in Houston. Uh, That book is such a lie. Your best life is not now. Your worst life is now. If you're a Christian, this this is as bad as it gets because your best life is yet to come. Your best life is the next one and focusing on what gives us courage, focusing on that is what gives us courage and strength to endure persecution. So, why did I pick this book for us today to study over the next several weeks? Because I genuinely believe the modern American church is spiritually weak and unprepared for the inevitable persecution that is ahead of us. I don't think we're ready. I don't think we're ready, and I think we need the words of Peter to help prepare our minds and our hearts for what's to come. And I'm not saying the church in America is being persecuted now. I think to call a little name-calling persecution, I think that's a slap in the face of people who've actually endured persecution. What we have going on right now in America is not persecuting the church. You're not being persecuted. You have some people calling you names, might not like you that much, but you're not being actually persecuted. But I do believe that the writing on the wall of this post-Christian culture we're living in indicates that a storm is coming. And I think that we need to be ready for it. I think the storm is coming. The modern church has been so pampered for so long that we're not ready. We've had the 80s and 90s boom of church culture, right? How many of you guys are church kids? Like you've been in church like your whole life pretty much. All right, most of us. So we've enjoyed the 80s and 90s of church culture, right? where we have like Christian bands that we can listen to when we're teenagers and we have all these Christian books that we can read and there's Christian bookstores that you can go to and all this Christian culture has really permeated into our society as Americans and we've enjoyed the fruits of that but, but the problem with that is it's caused us to become lazy and complacent and now what that has yielded in our culture is a post Christian society, because Christians for decades now have enjoyed the fruits of a Christian culture, a, a, a Christian moral culture, and we've not done anything with it. And so we've got a lot of people who proclaim to be Christians with their mouths, but their lives look nothing like it. And so when persecution comes, they're not genuine in their faith, so they're not be able to stand firm in what the true gospel is. Our comfort has led to complacency, and that has led to the post-Christian America we're living in now, which will lead to the inevitable persecution we're ultimately going to endure. Now, some of you are listening to this, and you're thinking, oh, man, that's heavy. You're starting to get a little anxious about it, starting to get a little nervous. When you think about it, well, maybe a little depression sets in. But the reason for that is because you're afraid of the unknown, and so you, you can choose, are you going to live in that fear? Or are you going to remain at peace? Because like we learned in Philippians, the Spirit of God lives in you and gives you joy that remains in the midst of bad circumstances. So right now, if you are thinking about persecution, and man, I've got to raise my family in this, and it's going to be so heavy and stressful, and, and man, I'm really fearful of the uncertainty that's all around us, 
this is exactly why we're studying this book, because we need to be reminded of who God is and what he's done so that we can stand firm for what's to come. So that's the context of Peter's letter. He's writing to remind his readers to stand firm in what they know and what they've experienced, which is the unbelievable grace of God. And listen, church, this morning, if you're a genuine believer, if your faith is truly in the God that's created the universe, that's true about you too. You've experienced his grace, you've experienced his mercy, and that is enough to get you through all the circumstances of life. So let's read together. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the res- resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So what exactly is Peter trying to communicate to his readers here? He's, he's trying to help them remember. Remembering is important. We, again, I've said this before. You look through the pages of Scripture and you see where God constantly tells us, hey, remember back this. Remember what happened. You look at the, the, how he interacts with the nation of Israel. He's constantly telling them, hey, set this memorial so that you can remember the thing that happened here so that your faith will be strengthened by remembering. So Peter's doing the same thing. He's trying to help them remember. He's saying, look, the storm's coming, but if you'll stand firm in the gospel, you'll be able to endure to the end. So what are the things Peter reminds us about one he says remember the source of your salvation remember the source of your salvation look at verse 3 the first part of verse 3 says blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of whose great mercy because of his great mercy right our salvation is all because of God it's not of our own doing it's 100% the work of God in our lives when I was in like probably middle school, is my guess, um, we went up to the lake, uh, and it was kind of probably late fall, early winter, somewhere around there. And uh, me and my dad and my uncle and Stephen and BK, who kills it on the guitar, all five of us get in the boat, and we go out to this little kind of remote island where there's nobody staying at, and we get out and we start, we go over there to kind of shoot. Uh, this pistol my uncle had just got. Well, we get over there, and we shoot for a little bit, and my dad and my uncle just keep shooting, so uh, my brother and my cousin kind of get in the boat, and they're hanging out, and we're all kind of hanging out talking. Well, there's some waiters in the boat, and I'm over there with them, and I was like, I'm going to put these waiters on and kind of test. I'd never worn waiters before, and I was like, it'd be cool to kind of like walk around the water and not get wet. That'd be awesome, because it was kind of cold at this point, so the water was like freezing cold, and so I put the waders on, and I start kind of like walking through the water, and I'm like, this is really cool. And, uh, and hit my brother and my cousin, they're kind of playing around in the boat. And uh, I'm walking through, and I step, I, it's just like a complete drop-off. And I stepped on that drop-off, not knowing, and immediately I get down to the point where water starts flowing into the waders, all right? One, it's freezing cold. You ever been like in cold water where you like, can't talk? You're like, <gasps> Right, you're like just trying to catch your breath and like say something, but you can't say something. And, and, and the weight of the water is starting to fill the waders and it's pulling me under the water. So I'm like, 
like that meme where the dude's face is just barely sticking out of the water. That's me right there. And I'm like trying to scream for help, but it's so cold that I legitimately can't talk. It's like thousands of needles poking my body. And I'm like, I'm, this, this is how I go. This, I'm going to die. And I'm trying to like, my brother and my cousin are literally right there in the boat. And I'm like, what are you doing? I look over at them and they're going, wait in the water, my brother. Wait. They think I'm just playing around. I'm literally dying. And they're both idiots are sitting in the boat singing my funeral song right there. Like, this is the end of my life, and they're just singing this stupid song. And I'm like, I don't know, like, what else? I can't scream for help. I don't know what else to do. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm starting to kind of, like, you can see desperation in my eyes, and those two idiots can't see the desperation in my eyes. They have no, like, reason to be able to understand context clues, apparently. And, uh, and so I'm, like, starting to really freak out and think, like, this is it. This is it for me. This is how I go. I'm going to die in seventh grade from being an idiot and walking around in cold water and waders. And about that time, my uncle apparently sees that I'm drowning and runs from where he's at and grabs and pulls me out. And uh, I had to take this shameful ride back to the lake house half naked because I was freezing cold. And it was just a miserable, horrible experience. I needed someone to see my need for salvation and intervene on my behalf, right? That's what I needed. I needed someone, and apparently my brother and my cousin were too stupid to figure that out, but my uncle was smart enough to see that I needed to be rescued, and he had the means to rescue me, and he saved me. The gospel's kind of like that, but really it takes it even further because I at least was aware of my situation and knew I needed to be saved. The Bible tells us that We were dead in our sins. Dead people can't decide to be saved because dead means dead, right? Spiritually, death means death. When we're dead, there's no consciousness, there's no sensitivity or awareness to spiritual things. That means we weren't even aware of our condition. We were completely hopeless. Ephesians 2, which I think is one of the best gospel passages in all of scripture. It's just this clear presentation of what God has done for us. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also, but, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, look at that word, he made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you were saved by grace through faith And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. You didn't just come to the conclusion that you were a sinner in need of salvation. The spirit of the living God had already been quickening you and chiseling away at your calloused, dead heart long before you ever made the decision to surrender. You would not have been able to make the decision to surrender God if his spirit didn't reveal to you who he was and who you are and what your sin was. God did that work in you. 
It wasn't of your own efforts. It's not something that you can boast about. It's not like, man, I came to this amazing conclusion that God is amazing and he has all this grace and mercy for people. No, God revealed that to you because in your own strength, you were dead. You were an enemy of God. You were under his wrath. But God stepped across those enemy lines and said, look here who I am. He opened your eyes so that you can realize who he is. And then that opened a door so that you could surrender. Your salvation is all about three words in that whole passage we just read. But God made. That's the gospel. But God made. Apart from God calling you into salvation, you would still be walking according to the ways of this world. Lost, rebellious, and sinful. Look what Paul says there in Ephesians. He he says that we walked according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. What do you think that means? What do you think that means? It means before God opened our eyes to truth, we were following after the ways of Satan, rebellious towards God, choosing our own desires and our own logic and philosophy over that of God's. We were enemies of God by our own rebellion. But God loved you enough to make a way through Jesus, his only son, And then opened your eyes to the truth of that gospel. This is why the gospel is such a big deal. It's not that you just did some bad stuff and you had to ask Jesus for forgiveness. That's not the end of the gospel. The gospel is so much bigger than that. It's that you were a rebellious sinner set on your own path by your own choice. And God made you alive. He made you aware of that sin so that you could choose to surrender to him. And Peter says, don't forget that. He says, persecution's coming, and it's important that you remember that. It's because of his great mercy that you've been saved. Remember who you were and who you are now, and let that remind you of the love of God, that even when things get crazy and difficult, God's already proven his love for you, and that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. So we remember the source of our salvation, but we also remember the product of your salvation. Look at the second part of verse three. He says, he has given us new birth into a living hope. So Peter says, remember that your salvation was 100% the work of God in your life, but also remember that it has, what it has produced in your life. And it's produced two things, he tells us. One, a new birth. What is a new birth? What does that mean? First, let's look at the introduction to this letter to see what Peter says in verse Uh, One and two, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Asia Minor, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So a new birth is the product of the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient. The Holy Spirit lives in you, sanctifies you, pushes you towards obedience. This idea of being born again is a strange one, right? It's a weird one. In fact, we see this interaction in John chapter 3, verse 1, where Nicodemus is puzzled by this idea of being born again. It says, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. So Nicodemus is willing to say, look, man, 
I get there's something special about you. Obviously, you have this special relationship with God. You're able to do amazing works. No one can deny that. And Jesus replies, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus replies, he says, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. So many of you in the room have had kids before. You, you've gotten to see the experience of seeing this new life, right? This baby comes into life with a new understanding, a new consciousness. All that baby knew before was darkness, maybe a little bit of sound, but not really understanding what life is. And as soon as they're born, there's this new life, this new understanding, this new consciousness. They're awakened to light. They're awakened to reality. And, and there's this new awareness of the world. Being born again means we see the world in a different way. We have a new life, a new understanding, a new consciousness. We're no longer controlled by the desires of the flesh because we see things through new eyes. So the point Peter is making is that when we surrender to Jesus, he changes everything. Listen, the gospel is not something that you add to your life. Do you get that this morning? The church and a relationship with Jesus isn't just another facet of your busy American life. No, the gospel is your life. If you truly know Jesus, he's changed your life, he's giving you new life, you have a new consciousness, a new awareness, and everything about this life is guided and directed by that relationship with God. Once you come into a relationship with God, you're so changed by it that you're literally a new person, you're a new creation. Our appetites change. We're not hungry for the things of this world. Our ambitions change. Our goals and direction in life is different. We're not about career and our own progress in life. That's not who we are. We're about the glory of God because our eyes have been opened to this gospel. Our affections change, who and what we love. You can't surrender to Jesus and not be radically changed by him. It's important that you get that. We hammer that all the time. And the reason we do that is because it's so important. You cannot come into a relationship with Jesus and it not make you into a new life. That's why Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. It's passed away. It's dead. And see, the new has come. A relationship with Jesus changes everything. It gives you a new life. You're a new person when you come to faith and repentance. The gospel makes people new. It's not just adding something new to your life, but makes you into a completely different person altogether. So the product of our salvation is new life, but also, he says, it's a new living hope. Peter says our new birth is into a living hope. What does that mean, though? What does it mean to, to be into a living hope? I think sometimes we have a misguided idea of what hope is, right? I hope that the Cowboys make it to the Super Bowl. I don't have a lot of expectation that that's gonna happen, but I hope, right? That'd be cool. It'd be really awesome if my kid at some point in his life who's like a diehard Cowboys fan 
If at some point in his life he could see the Cowboys actually make it to the Super Bowl and win one, right? Because all I have is memories from when I was a kid that's I'm living off the 90s, that's all I got. So I hope, but there's no expectation. What Peter's talking about is not that. What he's talking about is the same way that we hope and we expect when our wives are pregnant and that baby's on the way. Right? We know it's coming. We hope that it's coming. Our hope is in that there's this awaiting expectation that in nine months there's going to be a little baby there. Right? We've got to be prepared for it. We've got to be ready for it. We know it's coming. That's the hope that Peter's talking about here. Our hope is not just wishful thinking. It's eager expectation. We await with anticipation for our salvation to be made complete in eternity. That is what our hope is. Romans 8, verse 18 through 19, and then we'll skip to verse 22. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy or are worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have been who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope, we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. So we as believers, we, we patiently wait. Lord, Lord Jesus, come. Right? We wait for that. Our hope is in that. Peter says this hope is living, meaning it's active within us. It shapes our focus. It shapes our, our priorities. We don't live for the here and now. We know that our best life is future tense, and so we invest ourselves in eternal things. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 19, don't store up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. Jesus is saying, look, you as believers should understand that your hope is future tense. It's in something that's coming. And so don't live this life for the things of this world. Live your life for the future glory in heaven. Live your life for eternal things. Peter says, remember the source of your salvation. Remember the product of your salvation. He also says, remember the sufficiency of your salvation. Look at the third part of verse 3 there. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, we've got this uh, like big barbecue pit trailer thing in the back. And uh, it's, a, it's a trailer with a giant smoker pit on it. And uh, we're trying to get it, like, registered so that when we drive around, we're not breaking laws. Um, and so, Brandon Hill's been helping me with that. He's an uh, officer in Beaumont. He's been taking care of kind of those steps. Well, the other day, he called, and he's like, hey, we need to get a weight of this trailer. And so, he's like, can you bring it to Beaumont? There's a place in Beaumont where you can get, get it weighed. So, I was like, okay. So, I went back there, and I loaded up. Well, my truck has this little backup camera thing that, uh, that I've installed. And if you got one of that, is, that's the best thing. Like if you ever pull trailers, it makes life so much easier. You get back right up to it and not have to do the whole like backup, get back and see, or you back up a little bit more. Or the thing where you just back up as far as you can and let it hit the back of your bumper and you're like, all right, I made it, there we go. So 
I, uh, it's, my mind's out. My, my camera has broken. And so nobody was here. Julian was out sick. And uh, I was like, well, I'm going to try to load up real quick. So I back up to it. And uh, I, I'm just a little bit off. Well, usually on a trailer like that, you can just kind of like bump it and get it close and lower it down. So I'm like, I'm a man, I can handle this, right? And so I get out there and I start trying to like budge it and I realize that my strength is completely insufficient to even make this thing budge like a centimeter. Like this thing is a bazillion pounds and there's no way I could move it at all. Like I couldn't even like, like hit it and bump it like even like a little bit. And so I had to literally <laughs> like 20 times like just kind of get back there and like get it perfectly. I had to get it perfectly aligned so that it could perfectly low, lower down. And I realized that my strength was radically insufficient to get, it, to get it done. Here's the awesome thing about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was sufficient to save you. It was sufficient to save you. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was and is sufficient to save you. So you have sexual sin, Christ is sufficient. You have anger issues, Christ is sufficient. You have addictions, Christ is sufficient. So if, you, if you turned your back on Christ and rejected him three times like Peter did, Christ is sufficient. If you actively sought to end Christ, the Christian faith by murdering Christians, Christ's, it, Christ is sufficient. You don't have to doubt that. You don't have to doubt the sufficiency of Christ. His sacrifice for you was sufficient. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Our hope is in Jesus because his death and resurrection is sufficient for our salvation. There's nothing else in this world that's sufficient for that. Your own labor, your own works, your church attendance, your morality, none of that is good enough to save you, but the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save you. John talks about this as well. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Listen to this. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for those of the whole world. By dying and resurrecting, Jesus defeated sin and death and became the sufficient atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. His death, his resurrection, is sufficient enough to save you, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, Jesus is enough. He also says, remember the reward of your salvation. Look at verse four. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. A couple of weekends ago, our kids, our two youngest, had a birthday party. Um, they had this big swim party. Some of you guys were there. Uh, they left that making bank. Like, people gave them way too much money. And uh, they had, each had about 200 bucks which for six, five, six, seven, whatever age they are, that's a lot of money, right? Like you're, you're, you're literally a king if you're six and you have 200 bucks. So uh, in true fashion, they decided to waste it all on the stupidest stuff, right? They, they had no, we were trying to like, hey, if you pulled your money together, you can get this really cool thing for the backyard or uh, you could do this. You, we're trying to like help them understand or you could like save it and like pile it with something else and get this thing. They were like, no, we don't want to do that. 
show us the Walmart, let us order whatever toys we want, and let's do that. And, uh, and so sure enough, they spent their money on the dumbest stuff. And here, here's the, the kicker, and here's what you're trying to understand. What's their kids that we get? They're like not ready to understand this, but like their stuff from Christmas, it has made it to the abyss pile in the garage that eventually makes it to the dumpster. Um, and, and, and so that, that stuff that they buy, eventually it, it, it's, it's worthless, right? I mean, eventually we're, we're going to get rid of it. They're going to stop playing with it. It's going to get broken. We're going to throw it away. And I was thinking about that junk, partly because Becca likes to pile it all up in the garage until it becomes this pile that's like bigger than the stage. And I'm like walking through the garage, like trying to step over stuff and like get through, right? I told her like, just throw it away. Eventually the pile gets so big that I get irritated. I load it up and I bring it to the dumpster. So let's just, let's just cut all of that out, have a clean garage and get rid of it immediately. As soon as you clean out whatever you want, get rid of it. And so I was thinking about that because I literally just cleaned the garage out a couple of days ago and went in there and sure enough, there was more things laying where the pile was going to start growing. And I started thinking about that junk and, and how we do the exact same thing. You know, like I'm hard on the kids because I'm trying to teach them like don't waste your money and stuff and that, but, but I'm guilty of the same thing. I've got closets full of stuff that at one point I thought I needed and was going to make me happy and fulfill me and it's literally sitting in a garage or sitting in a closet. We invest so much energy on living our lives for the here and now. And for what? For what? We invest everything in our careers. We invest everything in our kids' extracurriculars. We invest everything in the trivial things of life and so little in the things that actually are worthy of our investment. The reward of our salvation is something that's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's being kept in heaven for you. What's, what's the reward? It's God. The reward of our salvation is eternal intimacy with God. That's the reward of your salvation. We uh, often find ourselves dreaming and thinking about what heaven's going to be like, right? You got the Mercy Me song, I Can Only Imagine. We dream about what, what, what's heaven going to be like. And often we, we, we think about what, what makes heaven so awesome. We, we, we talk about like pearly gates and golden streets and seeing loved ones who have gone before and meeting guys like Moses and Paul, Peter, eating that cattle on a thousand hills. Probably going to be a pretty good steak. All right, we think about stuff like that. We're like, man, when I get to heaven, it's going to be awesome because of those things. Let me tell you, those things are cool and all, but that's not why heaven is awesome. Heaven's awesome because God's there. And for eternity, you get to be in intimacy with him. That's the reward of your salvation. It's not all of those stuff. It's being in intimacy with the Father. Our treasure is intimacy with God, and that is infinitely more worthy of our life's devotion than anything else. Yes, our careers are important because they allow us to provide for our families and reach people we wouldn't otherwise be around, but intimacy with God is better. Your career is important. 
I get that. You got to provide for your family. You got to work hard. You got to have a job. A lot of us want to advance sometimes for the wrong reasons, right? We, we want ourselves to feel good about ourselves. And so we search after that promotion. And that's why we're, why we're living for that. That's why we do all the overtime. And our focus is on those kinds of things. But listen to me, intimacy with God is better than your job and your career. It's better than that overtime check. There's nothing wrong with putting your kids in extracurricular activities, but when it dominates your life, what message are you sending? And that stuff can be fun, and it can help your kid. It can help them learn you know, how to work with others and all that good, those good lessons that come along with that kind of stuff. But intimacy with Christ is infinitely better. And it's important that we teach our kids that. You want to know why so many kids walk away from the church? It's because their parents aren't teaching them that. They're more worried about whether they can throw a ball or not. What if we taught our kids that intimacy with God is infinitely more valuable than all the other things in this world? We can excuse and justify all of our idolatry, but we're missing out on the real reward of our salvation, which is intimacy with God, and he is so much more worthy of our life's investment than anything else. I mean, I think it's time that we as a church have an honest evaluation of our hearts and what we spend our lives on. Because if we're honest, our time and energy is far more expended on the things of this world than the things of God. Let's just be honest about that. We're teaching it to our kids. We're teaching it to future generations. And it's continually producing this this fake Christianity that's just not real. And if the persecution is coming, we're not going to be ready for it. Your kids aren't going to be ready for it. Christians don't live like the world. We don't live the daily grind of just working, making money, raising kids, and dying. We live for the glory of God. We live for the kingdom. Because unlike everything in this life, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. The final thing that Peter tells us to remember is the promise of your salvation. Look what he says in verse five. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter, he's reminded us of the source of our salvation, that our salvation is in God alone, the product of our salvation, that the result of salvation is new life, new hope. He's, he's reminded us of the sufficiency of our salvation, that Jesus' death and resurrection was, was and is enough The reward of our salvation is eternal intimacy with God. And finally, we're going to finish up talking about the promise of our salvation. When I was studying for this, I did a little bit of research. And I found out this crazy statistic that the White House has been breached 22 times. 22 times. 11 of those that actually made it into the White House. 22 times on the property. 11 of those inside the building. And you're thinking, well, there must all have been like in the beginning before they had like a lot of, no, no. One was in 2020. They made it in the building in 2020. I don't know how we didn't hear about this in the news. Maybe you did, I didn't. This is the most guarded place in America and it's still not completely impenetrable. I'm thinking it'd be a fun vacation. I want to go check it out and see if we can make it, how far we go. And I say, I was just joking. Peter says your salvation is being guarded by what? By God's power. 
Peter says your salvation is being guarded by God's power. That means there's no one getting it. It's, it's safer than anything else ever. Right? Jesus talked about this as well. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given, given them to me, listen to this, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Our salvation isn't at risk. It can't be snatched away. The promise is that the sheep will never perish. This means... Once saved, always saved, which is an amazing promise. We don't have to worry every day that God is going to change his mind about us. By his power, our salvation is guarded forever. But listen, this comes with a caveat though, right? The text, Peter says that our salvation is guarded by what? By our faith, which means our faith has to be genuine for the promise to apply. If our faith is real, it will endure. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, listen to this, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. John's talking about some people who were within the church who proclaimed Christ with their lips, but then they left and went out for the things of this world. And John says, no, those weren't the real deal. That's not the real deal because the real deal remains. Real faith will endure. So how do we know if our faith is real? First John 2 verse 3, this is how we know that we have come to know him. This is how we know if we're genuinely safe, if our, saved, if our faith is real. It says if we can keep his commands, right? The evidence of that is that new life that we were just talking about. He says the one who says I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. So enduring obedience is a sign of real faith. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. He says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, and because of that, there's a re reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. So if your faith is genuine, the spirit of the living God empowers you to endure in obedience and your promise that your salvation is guarded by the power of God. So if your faith is real, there will be obedience, you will endure, and if that's true about you, then your salvation is guarded by God and you don't have to question, am I truly saved or not? If your faith is real and you can evidence that by your obedience, then yes, your faith is real. And your salvation is guarded and once saved, always saved. There's two far spectrums that you can err to, right, on that, on that whole deal. You can think, well, I'm once saved, always saved. So I said a prayer at this little kid event when I was six years old and I walked down and I got baptized and, and I'm good. I never, my life doesn't reflect that there's anything new about me or that, that I'm truly a Christ follower, but I said a prayer and so the preacher said, once saved, always saved, so I'm good. I don't have to worry about that. That's one far extreme. That's not true. Read First John. It's all about the fact that there's no fruit, there's no salvation. Right, because real faith produces real change. We just talked about that. If you're truly saved, there's going to be a new life. But then the other far extreme of that is that you can lose your salvation. That if you do bad stuff, God will get mad at you and take that salvation away from you. 
That's an error too. That's not how it works. The way that it really works is that if your faith is real, that you will live in obedience because the Holy Spirit has made you into a new creation. Right? It's the, it's the go and sin no more part that Jesus talked about. If your faith is real, you'll walk in obedience, and yes, you'll stumble along the way, but your life will reflect that you've truly been changed by the Holy Spirit, by your salvation, by the gospel. And if that's true about you, then that will endure forever. You are truly saved, and you are a genuine follower of Jesus, and it's not something that you have to stress or worry about. Peter was writing this letter to a group of Christians that were headed for an immense testing of their faith. Like, so we may not know the, the, the immense testing of what was going on there. And because we've got kids in the room, I'm not going to get into detail about it, but I would encourage you to maybe Google what Nero did to the early church. Horrific, 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 horrific stuff. Like, take anything that you could probably imagine and multiply it by 100. I mean, it was bad. And these Christians endured that. They were on the verge of unbelievable persecution and trials, and he wanted to make sure that they remembered the God that they served so that they could stand firm in the face of horrific trials. He wanted them to remember the source of their salvation. He wanted them to remember the product of their salvation, the sufficiency of their salvation, the reward of their salvation, and the promise of their salvation. And so for us today, knowing that we live in uncertain times, and who knows what the future holds. I think this, this thing would be true for us. We need to remember these things. We need to remember these things, and we need to stand firm in these things. Would you please stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed? When we're focused on the truths of the gospel, we can endure anything for the glory of God. When we set our minds and our hearts on who God is and what he's done for us through his power, we can endure anything that's to come. So if the idea of persecution is terrifying to you, the gospel can embolden you to be able to stand firm in the day of persecution. So the question this morning is, do you know Jesus? Have you experienced this salvation that we're talking about? Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again, I'm not asking you if you said a prayer when you were in BBS as a kid. I'm asking is, is your faith genuine and is it, is it evidenced by your obedience? Because it's one thing to say that you believe God, that, you've, that you're a Christian, that you're a Christ follower. It's another thing to truly like for that to be true about you. It's not that we work hard to earn our salvation. It's that our salvation works hard to change us. The gospel changes us. Not through our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because God living inside of you can't help but to make you into a new creation and give you a new birth. And so again, the question is, do you know Jesus? Have you experienced the salvation we're talking about? Have you really put your faith 
trust in him? Have you surrendered to your, your, your life to him as Lord? It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who surrenders themselves to Jesus as Lord and makes him the king of their life, they're gonna be saved. They're gonna experience this salvation that we're talking about. So what, what's required for that? It requires you to repent of your sins, to, to come into an understanding and agree with God about what your sin is and what it's done in your life and to mourn that and to hate that, to repent of that, to turn away from that. And to choose to surrender your life to Jesus, to make him the Lord of your life, to live your life for his glory. And when we come to God with genuine faith and repentance and surrender our lives to him, he will save us and give us a new life and a new hope. So this morning, if you are willing to acknowledge that yes, you recognize that there is no fruit in your life of salvation and you're tired of playing the games, the church games and all that other stuff and you're ready to truly surrender your life to Jesus this morning. You realize that I've never truly put my faith in Jesus. Maybe I played some spiritual games, but I've never truly put my faith in Jesus. If that's you this morning and you want to know more about how to put your faith and your hope in Jesus and surrender your life to him, I would encourage you right now with every head bowed and every eye closed to slip your hand up where you're sitting. You're recognizing that, man, I'm not truly saved. I'm not truly put my faith in him. But I want to know more about that. Slip your hand up. I'm going to pray for you. We would love to talk to you about that. In a moment, the band's going to sing. There's going to be a couple of people that are going to be standing down here in front who would love to talk to you about that. If that's not your thing, if you're like, dude, I'm not walking down there, that's, that's okay. There's a card in front of you. Fill out the card. We'll call you this week. Take a step towards that so that we can talk to you about that, so that we can walk you through this. This is what we're here for. That is what our joy is all about, living for God, proclaiming his story. That's what we want to do. We want to talk to you about what it means to truly give your life to Jesus. So if that's you, take one of those two steps. Either come down, grab these people, talk to them now, or fill out the card, and we, we can call you this week sometime. If you're a believer this morning, my challenge to you is remember who your God is and who he has made you to be. Stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in the gospel. Don't let yourself waver because of circumstances. Stand firm in the gospel because that's where our strength comes from. Our strength doesn't come from ourselves, from how much we know or how good we are. Our strength comes from God. And the good news that he loves us despite our sin and gave himself for us. Father God, we thank you for, we thank, thank you for our time together. We thank you for your, this word that's challenging to us. God, I pray that we wouldn't walk out of this room unchanged by the truth of your gospel. But if there are people here that don't know you, they never truly surrendered their life to you, God, I pray that they would, they would choose that this morning, that your spirit is speaking to them now, peeling back the blinders, helping them to see who you are and your love and mercy and their sin and how uh, just detestable that is to you, God, and that they would repent of that, they would mourn of that, and they would surrender to you this morning. God, I pray that uh, you would allow us to have conversations with them. God, we pray that you would move during this time for people here who know you, 
God, I pray that you would prepare us, prepare our hearts for what's to come, that we wouldn't be this weak, ineffectual, fake Christian culture that's permeated through our world, but that we would be genuine followers of you, sold out for this gospel. God, burden our hearts for this. Let this be the foundation of who we are as people. God, we pray that your spirit would move during this time. Let me pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.